Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day-to-day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up, Marina Hyde grapples with last week's coronation protest power play from the Met. Al Hunt reveals the incredible story of one man's struggle to rebuild his life after being struck by lightning. And award-winning British actor Ruth Wilson considers hashtag MeToo hypocrisy, the violence of cosmetic surgery, and why she steers clear of social media. Before we begin, just a warning. There's a bit of bad language in this episode. Now, Marina Hyde is left reeling from the revelation everyone saw coming. That, yet again, the Met leads the way in incompetence and overreach after a stunning misuse of power at the coronation demonstrations. If only there had been some way to check whether the peaceful protest was lawful. Read by Serena Manteghi. In a deeply unpredictable turn of events, anticipated by only the most casual students of the Metropolitan Police, the force has made another howler. Howlers are the specific category of Met misuse of powers where nobody died or got sexually assaulted, or both. Nevertheless, they can have serious significance. The anti-monarchy group Republic participated in months of briefings and meetings with the Met concerning their protest at last Saturday's coronation, in which they were informed that their peaceful plans were lawful. As it turned out on the day, however, six members of the group, including its chief executive Graham Smith, were arrested before the protest even began. According to the Met's account, they were held on suspicion of conspiracy to cause public nuisance. We seized lock-on devices. And yet, did they? The police seem instead to have seized the luggage straps the protesters used to secure their placards. The force has now expressed regret that these arrests took place at all. This lengthy statement adds, It was not clear at the time that at least one of the groups stopped had been engaging with police protest liaison team officers ahead of the event. Hmm, if only there had been some way of establishing this situation in the moment, 
perhaps on some kind of communication device. Mobile police have carried personal radios since the late 1960s, so maybe the technology still feels new and unwieldy to them. Whereas the new Public Order Act, passed at speed into law a whole three calendar days previously, is something with which they are far keener to display an aggressive familiarity. At time of writing, the allegation about the arrest of the Republic members remained up on the Met's Twitter feed, despite it having also retracted it. In some ways, this seems apt, allowing any users now catching up with the story to experience another play-by-play of Met incompetence and overreach as it happened. And of course, the Met indulges in so many displays of strength that later turn out to be cock-ups or accidental displays of weakness that they can't possibly be expected to go back and delete every stupid, high-handed and arguably libelous tweet. The paperwork of correcting their paperwork would be a constant burden. As a made-up police officer might put it, I think the public would prefer us to be out catching criminals. Or, indeed, staying in catching criminals, given that the Met is currently investigating more than 1,000 sexual assault and domestic abuse claims involving around 800 of its officers. Serving Met officers have been taken off serious and organised crime investigations and counter-terrorism in order to investigate wrongdoing within their own force. The Met remains in special measures, a mere two months having elapsed since the publication of Louise Casey's devastating report that found it institutionally racist, sexist and homophobic, while the Met chief has publicly grappled with his ability to do something about the above. In all cases, I don't have the final say on who's in the Metropolitan Police, he WTF'd last month. I know that sounds mad. I'm the commissioner. Anyway, back to these regretted arrests at the coronation, which shouldn't be swept under the carpet even by people who fervently disagree with Republic's cause. Unfortunately, rather a lot of sweeping seems to be underway by our politicians, supposedly freedom lovers to a man and woman. I'm going to shock you here, but at the time of writing, Labour leader and former lawyer Keir Starmer couldn't say whether he did or didn't condemn the arrests a lack of clarity that suggests once again that Starmer's favourite position is not so much sitting on the fence as locking onto it. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak is at pains to insist that the police are operationally independent of government, which might be a little too convenient. I'm not sure you get to pass draconian new legislation into law a mere three days before the coronation then claim its prompt misuse has nothing to do with you. After all, you can hardly say the previous stab at draconian overhaul, the Police, Crime, Sentencing and Courts Act 2022, didn't give a clear warning as to how this might play out. This was the act that allowed for greater sentences for attacking statues than women, encouragingly. In that case, the police began quickly and frequently misusing their new powers, either because they didn't understand them or because they didn't care to. The Sarah Everard vigil during the special circumstances of the pandemic was an earlier warning bell. We saw how the Met policed protest when given almost unlimited powers. Yet they keep on getting more. 
Suella Braverman's home office in particular should struggle with McCavitying its way out of this latest foul-up, given that it only very recently sent an official warning letter to Republic, stressing that new laws have been brought forward to deal with disruption at major sporting and cultural events. According to the Home Office last week, this letter was meant to inform, not intimidate, a claim that possibly doesn't hold up in light of events. Then again, a whole lot of things don't hold up. From the new Act, rushed with such ill-advised haste onto the statute book, to the troubling fact that a mere 6% of those arrested for protesting against the coronation were charged with anything at all. If we looked at any other country and saw people being put in cells without grounds for peacefully protesting against the investiture of any type of leader, we would surely have an unfavourable view of it. Lawmakers who lack the courage to take these unfavourable views may think they are doing the popular thing. In fact, they are a danger to us all. That was Yes, the Met Police threw royal protesters into cells for no good reason. But at least they regret it. By Marina Hyde. Read by Serena Manteghi. Now, Scott Knudsen was holding his baby when a lightning strike suddenly tore through his body. Here he reflects on the challenging, laughter-filled path to reclaiming his health and identity. By L. Hunt. Read by James Sobel Kelly. For Scott Knudsen, it was shaping up to be a good day. It was his daughter's first birthday, and his wife Tracy had just called to say she had a surprise for him. Knudsen had been in town, fetching hay and running chores for their ranch in rural Texas. He thought Tracy might have got him another horse, but when he got home, it was even better. Tracy was there, with baby Haley, and they had washed his dirty tractor. Now, nearly 20 years later, Still on the same ranch, Knudsen smiles at the memory. Oh my goodness, it made me so happy. It was mid-afternoon on a July day in 2005. Knudsen was 37 years old. In the distance, there was a thunderstorm. He could see the rain clouds, 15 or so miles away, but where they stood, there were blue skies and calm. Several of their horses were out to pasture. There were chickens around, pecking at the dirt. Tracy handed Haley to Knudsen to hold. He remembers it as a contented moment. It was one of those young couple happy moments. It was so peaceful. And then, just like that, it changed. Suddenly, a lightning bolt struck Knudsen, entering through his head and exiting through his left hand. He remembers bright light and the loudest noise. The horses ran for cover, while pipes that had been buried deep underground lurched to the surface. In their home, 300 yards, 275 meters from where they stood, the television blew out. Then, just as abruptly, the chaos passed. Knudsen was still standing, but Haley had somehow ended up in Tracy's arms in the commotion. I knew we'd been hit by lightning, he says. We started laughing. There was just something ludicrous about it. There were blue skies. How in the world could that have happened? In fact, lightning is one of nature's most frequently occurring spectacles, 
with around 3 million flashes globally every day, equating to 1.4 billion strikes each year, or 44 strikes every second. In the U.S., about 40 million lightning strikes hit the ground annually, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Nonetheless, the odds of being struck are slim, less than one in a million. Of those unlucky ones, the majority, almost 90%, survive. In 15 years, from 2006 to 2021, 444 deaths from lightning were recorded across the entire U.S. Knudsen is a fifth-generation Texan, born and raised in Georgetown, 75 miles away from Fredericksburg, his closest city. Now 54 years old, he appears on a video call as the quintessential cowboy, wearing a white Stetson that accentuates his tan, in front of a wall covered with bridles and reins. Knudsen and his wife bought their ranch soon after learning she was pregnant with Haley. Tracy was a city girl, he says, but Knudsen had grown up knowing how to read the land, how to watch the weather, which risks to take. Lightning strikes were a known danger. Knudsen had once seen a tree get hit, instantly killing the cows beneath it. But that afternoon, there was no sign, no time to take cover. After the impact, his brain felt like an old TV that had been unplugged. He remembered back in the old days all those fuzzies and it would take a minute to reboot. The three of them made their way back to the house, shell-shocked but apparently unharmed. I thought I was okay, says Knudsen. I'm not trying to be a macho cowboy or anything. I just thought we were going to be fine, because I've had hard hits my whole life doing what I do. Though her ears were still ringing and her eyes smarting, Tracy left to go pick up Haley's birthday cake from town, a half-hour drive away. She wouldn't have left me, but I said, I'm fine, Knudsen says. We were trying to celebrate Haley, to be good parents. By the time Tracy got home, an hour or so later, Knudsen hadn't moved. His head and hand felt as if they were burning. I couldn't do anything. But he only realized something was seriously wrong when he saw Tracy's horrified expression. The upper half of his face was solid black. From here up, Knudsen gestures to the bridge of his nose. It just went south really quick after that. Knudsen only knows what happened next from Tracy's retelling. The trauma of the event was still catching up to them, and seeking to call a hospital, Knudsen tried to dial using his computer keyboard and not the nearby phone. I was all messed up, he says. Just totally fried. The word is apposite. As sharply as lightning might split the horizon, in fact, a bolt is only two to three centimeters wide. This small channel, about the same width as a thumb, carries a charge so intense that its temperature is 30,000 degrees Celsius, five times hotter than the surface of the sun. It was touch and go as to whether they would make it to the hospital in Fredericksburg, Knudsen says. It was bad. It was so bad. But they did. A doctor gave the three of them a cursory checkup, but admitted she wasn't sure what to do. They didn't know what to look for, Newton recalls. There wasn't that chapter in the book. After some back and forth, the family were eventually seen by someone with relevant expertise. The lightning had traveled down the arm in which Knudsen had been holding Haley, but thank God she was fine, he says. 
fervent still. Tracy was fine after a couple of days, and I... Knudsen gives a one-shouldered shrug. And I just wasn't. By the grace of God, I'm still here, because I shouldn't be. The physical toll was immense. Knudsen developed heart palpitations. A brain scan revealed his cognition had also been affected. Everything was just going fast, trying to reprogram. His hand felt as if it was on fire for months afterwards. The spot on his head where the lightning made contact took years to heal. More after-effects took time to reveal themselves, such as fluid around Knudsen's lungs. Nearly a year later, when he was at the cinema, I was eating some popcorn when all the fillings in my teeth fell out, he says. It just tore up my body. Some challenges, however, were immediate. Knudsen's memory had been almost entirely wiped, including his knowledge of how to perform basic skills. I couldn't read or write, he says. Even in his depleted state, Knudsen was determined not to put more strain than was necessary on his family. In part, Knudsen was helped by his strong Christian faith, but equally, he had confidence in his ability to recover. By the time of the lightning strike, Knudsen had already suffered dozens of broken bones from breaking in horses and helping out on the ranch. Some had been serious. At age 16, for example, a horse had fallen on his leg, prompting fears that it would have to be amputated. Knudsen's prior experience meant that he knew to approach recovery with a survival mindset. I never let myself get to a low point, ever, with any injury, because once you're down there, it's a much longer ride to get back to the top. Instead, he says, I just accepted it, and we made it fun. Tracy taught him to read and write again, alongside Haley. My wife went from one kid to two, says Newton. Together, they learned numbers using the phone's keypad and watched children's music group The Wiggles on TV. Haley was much better than he was at coloring between the lines. It was a struggle, you know. The hand-eye coordination, the mind coordination. I had to relearn a lot of stuff. After three months, Knudsen started making faster progress, but he was still unable to drive or work on the ranch. His muddied thinking and slow responses put him at too great a risk of injury. For Tracy, it meant more work to keep the home fires burning. For her husband, it amounted to a loss of identity. After all these years of being a perfect cowboy, it didn't make sense, says Knudsen. He recalls watching Tracy doing the rounds, feeding the animals, while he sat at the window, powerless to help. It was such a low feeling, but also such a proud feeling because my wife, man, she just gritted up and did it. Knudsen believes that he's always held the power of positive thinking, ingrained in my DNA but the lightning strike tested it to the limit. He sought out situations that would give him a lift. I would just find my peace, whether it was trying to read a book or the Bible, or going to the barn and seeing the horses. Spending time with Tracy and Haley reliably reset a bad mood. We laughed a lot. But on days when joy was elusive, Knudsen would seek out comedy, a Seinfeld episode, or Tim Allen, or teach himself something new. At the end of the day, I'd figure... I'm better today, because I learned this. That one victory in the morning could change my day. Challenges motivated Knudsen. Sometimes people would make comments such as, 
Well, you might not ever be able to read again, but at least you're alive. They meant well, but their perception of his ability rankled. Just lights my fire, he grins. I want to do it. Not for them, but for me. Knudsen felt a deep-seated aversion to seeing himself as a victim. Instead, he fed his curiosity. This happened to me for a reason. What is this reason? How am I going to get better? It doesn't matter where you start the day, as long as you're not there when you finish it. What he appreciated most was friends telling him, I knew you'd be fine. Six months after the strike, Knudsen was reading and writing again. He was back in the driver's seat of his truck, and he was able to feed his beloved horses. The real milestone, he jokes, was when he could color between the lines. Once I hit that stride, man, there was no looking back. The past, however, continued to trip Knudsen up. His memories predating the strike, of his parents, his childhood, his wedding day, in large part did not return. Tracy and his relatives told him stories and showed him photos, so that I would feel like a part of the family. And now I do, Knudsen says. It feels like I was there. But there was definitely a learning curve, especially as he re-entered the world beyond the ranch. Knudsen had not publicized his injury. I didn't want to bring anybody down. And when out and about in Fredericksburg, he feared inadvertently snubbing someone he had known. That always made me nervous. I didn't want to go out because I didn't want to be disrespectful. When Knudsen was greeted by an unfamiliar face, either Tracy would lean over and give me the notes, or I'd go talk to him like I knew him, and then connect the dots. Eventually, he gained back his confidence, and soon enough, his absent memories were supplanted by new ones. Now I just tell everybody hello, which I probably did before. The physical trauma was more insidious. Long after the strike, Knudsen found that his heart and mind were both still inclined to race. Those heart palpitations only stopped a year ago. After two years, Tracy got him a border collie. The dog went everywhere with Knudsen and was a steadying presence. Stroking him would just calm my brain. I really needed something to slow me down. Being around animals in general was therapeutic. Horses and dogs, man, says Knudsen appreciatively, but I get peace watching the chickens just scratch. His near-death experience taught Knudsen to take care of himself and be present in the moment. He is in better shape than he was before, works out daily, and has even started doing yoga on YouTube. Don't tell anyone, he grins. But most vital of all, he's been cultivating that life-saving sense of gratitude. Knudsen has his favorite Bible verses on display around his house, along with phrases he finds motivating and pictures of loved ones. I don't think I ever take anything for granted. Knudsen has since made his story of survival pivotal to his business, rebranding his ranch Lightning K. The Lightning Bolt logo appears everywhere, from his chaps to his trucks. In part, this rebrand was to embrace an experience that could easily have ended in tragedy. We didn't want to run away from it. It happened. We're going to make the most of it. But as the self-styled cowboy entrepreneur, Knudsen also speaks publicly about his recovery to inspire those who've also suffered trauma, or even just setbacks. We talk about the lightning and how we flipped it to good. Now, when Knudsen passes the spot where he was hit, as he does several times a day, he feels a sense of accomplishment. 
if he even thinks about it at all. Once in a while, I will think about how blessed I've been, he says. But I'm usually thinking, I gotta feed the chickens. That was Struck by Lightning, My Face Burned and My Memory Disappeared. Here is How I Made It Back by L. Hunt. Read by James Sobel Kelly. We'll be back after this short break. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay authenticity guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Welcome back to Weekend. Finally, as the affair star, Ruth Wilson, prepares to embark on a gruelling 24-hour play in the West End, she talks to Charlotte Edwards about hashtag MeToo hypocrisy, the violence of cosmetic surgery, and why she steers clear of social media. Read by Serena Manteghi. Ruth Wilson hitches the skin by her ears to demonstrate how she'd look if she had those little wires sewn into her face, by which she means a thread lift. Just that it would make the world of difference, she says. She is 41 and everyone around her talks about Botox and what to fill their face with. This is not in response to any question of mine. This is Ruth Wilson freewheeling on how confusing she finds the notion of female empowerment in 2023. As an actress, everyone does it. Very few resist. I haven't done anything yet, but it's in my head as like, well, do you decide not to and therefore potentially look older than your peers? Or do you just give in? Yesterday, she read in the New York Times that people should get Botox in their 20s to stop wrinkles forming. I mean, are they joking? I find it so... She emits a plosive exhale of despair. It's mad. It's massive violence. Why can't a woman age on screen? Or age full stop? But this is nothing new, she says. She sits back against the bonquette of the cafe in the photographic studio where we've met. Women don't help ourselves. Never have. She plucks examples. Tudor fashion, she says, pretending to cinch her waist with a corset, like humph! Or Elizabethans painting their faces with lead-based ceruse that ate their skin and made their hair fall out. We're like, wow, today. 
But in 200 years, they'll be looking back at images of women now going, what were they doing? What is that? You're blowing your face and lips up. Yet it's a multi-billion dollar industry, and women are part of that industry, perpetuating this empowerment. Later, she will apply the same charm and forthright common sense to Torpedo Hollywood. I should say, Botox is usually a no-go area in interviews. Best case, it's tiptoed around. After all, what film star wants to discuss having work? Or, come to think of it, late-stage capitalism in the female form, a subject Wilson has already torn through at 8.30am on this otherwise sluggish Friday. But then, Wilson likes to march into no-go areas, often with a placard. She took a stand on equal pay before it was fashionable. Ditto exploitation around sex scenes, the reason, allegedly, for her abrupt departure from Showtime's The Affair, starring alongside Dominic West, of which more later. Wilson is not just brave, she's heat-seeking. Her mother frequently reminds her that she was always looking for something to fight for. At university, I was going, guys, shouldn't we be protesting? But it was 20 years ago, there was nothing going on. Fees, maybe? That was it. Her favourite piece of life advice? When everyone goes right, go left. You could argue daring and adventurousness are visible streaks through the characters she picks. She stormed into our consciousness as Alice Morgan, the psychopath in Luther. A role I'd never seen on screen before. I mean, you had to go back 50 years. There was Mrs Coulter, the merciless antagonist in His Dark Materials. The best pieces are when you don't quite know why she's doing what she's doing. On stage, she has tackled roles that go to the edge of the abyss. Hedda Gabler, King Lear, the human voice. She is drawn to parts that explore how women think, she says. What's this person like in their own head, in their own idea of themselves? To that end, she played her real-life grandmother in the BBC's Mrs Wilson, a woman unaware of her husband's three other wives and five other children. Then there was True Things, released in 2021, which she both produced and starred in as Kate, a woman confusing limerence with love, madly projecting onto an iffy, impulsive ex-con she meets when he goes to the benefits office where she works. Her next role is in The Second Woman at the Young Vic, a gruelling 24-hour performance that consists of a single scene repeated 100 times on a loop, 4pm until 4pm. While Wilson stays in the role of Virginia, successive actors, old, young, professional, amateur, will play her long-term lover Marty as he is breaking up with her. The scene is lifted from the fictional play in the John Cassavetes film Opening Night, released 1977, and takes place in Virginia's sitting room. Marty arriving and apologising for being so crude. He carries a takeaway. He fixes them drinks. They sit down to eat. You don't think I'm capable, Virginia says. And that's what I want to be. I want to be capable. Wilson has not rehearsed with or even met any of the actors, screened and auditioned by the theatre, which is the whole point, she says, because how the scene unfolds over seven or so minutes hangs on each Marty's interpretation of the script. 
The Guardian's reviewer said, when the second woman was first performed by its creators Anna Brecon and Nat Randall in Sydney in 2017. It is a stunning exposure of gendered power relations and emotional coercion. One Australian Marty upped turned furniture. One grabbed Virginia's face. That Virginia was played by Randall in a Kinski-esque blonde wig and red dress, forcing her to look at him. The audience gasped. It really shows how different men interpret masculinity and how they feel they need to perform their masculinity, another Marty said afterwards. Alongside the stage, cameras are used to project close-ups on screen, allowing the audience in real time to read even micro-flickers of emotion in the actors' expressions, what Cassavetes termed the small feelings. I ask Wilson how the hell she's going to stay up for more than 24 hours. Literally, I have no idea. I've done it before, enhanced by something, you know, when I was young, but she shrugs. Anna and Nat said, Red Bull for the last six hours. Adrenaline will do the rest. But it's in extreme situations that you usually stay up all night, and what tiredness does to you is interesting. It's raw at 3am, when the words mean nothing anymore and she hopes the artifice of performance will crumble away and create surprise moments of truth or spontaneity, something that feels real in the exchange. The men will always come on, and I will not know what they'll bring. The audience have the option of going in for a few scenes, for a few hours, or staying all night. Wilson gets a loo break every couple of hours. It's not just me. The audience are getting a really weird experience too. It's like a gallery experience. Wilson is nothing if not ambitious for her audience. She wants them challenged, not pandered to or spoon-fed. Discomfort is important in art, she argues. She'll never forget her own epiphany, watching the Carol Churchill play Here We Go at the National. It was about death. I couldn't breathe. It was so suffocating to watch. It was extraordinary and it's never left me. Yet it got one or two stars and people walked out. I think back, brilliant. You made people so uncomfortable they had to leave. I think it's important to face things you don't want to see, because only then you will grow. Only then will you live properly. At heart, this is everything Wilson believes. Art should change the way you think. Art should change your life. Art can save you. Wilson wants her work to be art. Ruth Wilson grew up in Shepparton, Surrey, with three brothers and a black Labrador called Seb, who was so loved that Wilson's mother, Mary, mused that he might one day be stuffed and mounted on the kitchen wall. Wilson's father, Nigel, worked in the city, and later, when the children were older, Mary trained as a probation officer. Wilson was a sporty tomboy, always speaking up. Aged 11, she took her Usborne Facts of Life book to her all-girls Catholic school and informed the nuns that pupils needed sex education. She was, she admits, quite annoying. Frequently pestering, arguing, demanding to know why certain things could not be discussed. Always, I spoke my mind, she says. At the same time, she acknowledges with the tired sigh of a veteran looking back across a battle-scarred field that to be like this means that you'll always slightly rub people up the wrong way, 
or slightly be an outsider. Her go-left approach meant that as a teenager, she never had her ears pierced, definitely a stand against what every one of my friends was doing. Rather than take the bus or be driven by parents, she rode a moped to school. A distinct memory, she told one newspaper, was the sudden awareness of being gawped at by boys and her burgeoning sexuality. In one short year, between 15 and 16, she went from wearing hot pants to baggy jeans and big t-shirts. I didn't know how to negotiate it, so I started dressing like a boy. I felt like it was a way of disappearing slightly to avoid that gaze. She studied first at Nottingham, where she read history, and then at drama school. She was six months out of Lambda when she landed Jane Eyre in the BBC adaptation and was subsequently nominated for a BAFTA and Golden Globe. From there, her career soared. There was a chain of Hollywood movies, stage in London and New York. She won Olivier's for Anna Christie and her portrayal of Stella Kowalski in A Streetcar Named Desire, and with the accolades, the scrutiny returned. It wasn't enough that she was a great actor, or even that she was very pretty. Her looks were picked apart. She had been teased about her Jack Nicholson eyebrows since school. Now she read that her lips were a result of too much collagen, and was stunned. She was forced to defend herself. They are au naturel, a family trait. Her cousin has the same. I ask if it's true she rarely looks in the mirror. Well, I do, she says, but briefly. I don't think it's because I'm self-conscious or disappointed by it, but more that for some reason I don't take the face into consideration. Before I leave the house, I look at my outfit, my body, see if it all works, but I often forget to check my face and hair. I'm not sure what the psychology of that is. Perhaps then it's no surprise that the idea of preening on social media makes her physically recoil. In some respects, Instagram would be useful, somewhere her fan base could find her smaller projects, for instance, but the very idea fills her with dread. She dramatises an imaginary feed. Oh, hey guys, it's Ruth Wilson here. Then shudders. The self is so important on social media. It's created a very narcissistic society. Everyone is their own famous person. Everyone can be the centre of their own world. She jabs a finger at her phone. But it isn't human. It's a constructed world. It lacks actual connection or feeling. What's more, she's watched friends become obsessed. You can't have a conversation because they're looking for the next shot. Everything is what can I put out there? When they don't get hits, they feel low, not validated. She clicks her tongue at the performative feminism, the performative activism, the fact that everyone rushes to post on National Whatever Whatever Day. Nothing is real. I don't believe any of it. No one has real or strong beliefs. They are just dictated to. Quite apart from anything, being a slave to her phone would intrude on the things she loves best. Thinking, just thinking, is one. She has a restless mind. Also reading. Her mother sends book recommendations, as does Ryan Selzer, her producing partner, who discovered the book on which they based True Things. Most mornings she blasts through the news feeds. FT, New York Times, The New Yorker, Guardian, Daily Mail. I'll look at everything. She has talked about her loft-style flat in Bermondsey, 
South London and how she loves the proximity to theatres, but also running along the river, enjoying Tower Bridge, the Houses of Parliament, Big Ben. The only complication is that her boyfriend lives in New York. He writes novels, TV and film, she says, adding that that is all I'm allowed to know. I don't say his name, she explains. He's anonymous. Yes, she's happy to take flack for this insistence on privacy and jokes. People think he doesn't exist. She's talked about marriage, she's not a fan, and about wanting children and freezing her eggs. But I want to keep some part of me for my loved ones and for me. A glance at press reports from across the length of her career reveal constant speculation over her romantic life, including just about every actor she's worked with. Jake Gyllenhaal, Johnny Depp, Jude Law, Joshua Jackson. It's all rubbish, she has said. She appeared in The Lone Ranger, released in 2013 with Depp, but barely had a scene with him. She tells me now, I knew his security dudes better than I knew him. Another subject that still nettles is The Affair. She won a Golden Globe for her portrayal of Alison Bailey, a grieving mother who embarks on an affair with West's Noah Soloway, a married father of four. Wilson has always been frank about her feelings about the Shagathon storyline. To the Evening Standard, she said, Dom and I had to do so many sex scenes and I decided at one point I wasn't going to show my nipples anymore. To The Sun, why have I always got to do the orgasm face? There should be a male orgasm face. But she also said, and maintains to this day, that she couldn't discuss her departure in any way, shape or form. Then, in late 2019, an expose in The Hollywood Reporter said that Wilson had been prevented from saying anything by a non-disclosure agreement, or NDA, essentially gagging orders which seek to restrict the publication of certain information. The reporter alleged that the set was a hostile work environment and that her complaints at the regularity and unnecessary nature of the naked scenes meant that she was branded difficult. The paper reported that, during season two, Wilson declined to shoot an aggressive sex scene that involved her being pushed up against a tree at a yoga retreat by co-star Dominic West. It was rapey, a source told the reporter. Ruth was very unamused by it. According to the article, some of the greatest pressure to perform these scenes allegedly came from another woman, the series showrunner Sarah Treem. They quote insiders with first-hand knowledge of production and accused Treem of tone deafness when it came to recognising the position she was putting actors in. The source said, Over and over again, I witnessed Sarah Treem try to cajole actors to get naked even if they were uncomfortable or not contractually obligated to. Pressure came in the form of repeated coaxing. Everyone is waiting for you. You look beautiful to allay potential shyness. It's things you would think would be coming out of a man's mouth from the 1950s, the source said. The environment was very toxic. Treem responded that she'd done everything I could think of to make Wilson feel comfortable with these scenes. She also said, I would never say those things to an actor. That's not who I am. I am not a manipulative person and I have always been a feminist. Is there ever a place for an NDA? No, Wilson says. I don't think there should be any NDAs. 
If there's a problem, there's a problem. It needs to be dealt with, not put under NDA so you can't speak about it. She reminds me they were the go-to weapon of the Harvey Weinstein era. It was a given that you had to sign those things. Even if you were like, what, really? They were like, that's the way it works. Ten years ago, the whole industry was complicit. Agents, producers, PR people, in protecting the powerful. Hashtag Me Too was significant because it was unravelling that. Standing on that hinge between pre- and post-hashtag Me Too was, Wilson says, extraordinary. To actually witness Hollywood, she makes a whistling sound, shift like that. The most disappointing aspect was the vault hypocrisy. To see the survival instinct, you realise how fickle that industry is. There's no moral backbone. Attitudes, habits, the way people spoke changed, yes but only out of fear of being caught. People were like, we're going to have a meeting about how badly we've behaved and then we'll all be fine. It blew my mind. It made me understand a whole swathe of human behaviour. So many people don't really believe anything, only what makes them money. Weinstein knew how to get people Oscars, so his behaviour was ignored. They're opportunists, you see that but it makes you sage about what you want, what's important. Do you want to live in that world? Or would you prefer to be doing something else, like this weird 24-hour play, where you can explore things in a safe environment? Today, Wilson says she is resigned to the capricious nature of the sisterhood. Her argument is that women are people, and therefore no more or less likely to be supportive of each other. To expect them all to be supporting each other is kind of unrealistic. Part of the reason she is perplexed by cosmetic surgery is that it's a mixed message. Selling empowerment by telling women to change themselves. So, no, she doesn't like it. But the cycle of ingrained misogyny repeats partly because women are trained to judge, trained to be in groups. I'm amazed how, as we grow up and go into adult environments, So much of it still feels like a school playground with the popular group or whatever. Two days after our interview, I watch Wilson on stage at the Southbank Centre. She's one of three actors performing a reading from the writer Max Porter's latest work, Shy. It's interesting. Not least because Shy is a 16-year-old boy living in 1995 and the book is written in the 167 beats per minute rhythm of a drum and bass track. Afterwards, in an animated interview, the two were friends, Wilson asks Porter, When are you going to write a fucked up female? It's an exchange of weighty ideas about form, stretching language and energising storytelling, and also light teasing. Porter reveals that Wilson recorded a chunk of her audible of Virginia Woolf's To the Lighthouse in the loo. This is her safe environment among artists who challenge. I'm not surprised that Catherine Hepburn, who won Oscars but paid no heed to the award system, is one of Wilson's heroines. I love her. What a legend. She didn't play the Hollywood game. No, and I'm useless at playing the game. I don't want to play the game. Like, what game? What does that even mean? That's my answer. I can't. I physically can't. 
That was So Many People Don't Believe Anything, Only What Makes the Money. Ruth Wilson on Being a Hollywood Outsider by Charlotte Edwards. Read by Serena Mantegi. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like, subscribe to and rate the podcast. Maybe even leave us a nice review. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. This week's articles were read by Serena Mantegi and James Sobel Kelly and presented by me, Savannah Ayode greaves This episode was produced by Rachel Porter. The executive producer is Ellie Bury. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.